Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hosea. Hosea, we will arrive there in just a few moments. I'll take a moment to add my welcome to you all. Thank you all for being here. It's good to have our visitors with us, especially. Appreciate you coming by. Good to see familiar faces uh, that visit with us often, or at least once a year. It's good to have you all here. Appreciate you very much. There are many descriptions of the church in Scripture. Let's remember what the word church means in the Greek. The word we get church from is ekklesia in the Greek, and it simply means a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into an assembly. That's simply what ekklesia means, and that's where we get the word church. All the descriptions of the church that we find in Scripture refer to the only church that God recognizes, and that is the Church of Christ. And I say that because Scripture bears it out, that the church that Scripture speaks of is the Church of Christ. It is the Church of Christ because it belongs to Him. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, our Lord says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail upon it. The church belongs to Christ because it belongs to him. The church of Christ belongs to him. It is his body. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as the head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. Similar statement in Colossians 1, verse 24 it says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on my behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So when we talk about the church of Christ, it belongs to him, it is his body. And also it is his because he paid for it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Very simple to make the argument about the church of Christ from Scripture. And we can go on and on to talk about why the church belongs to Jesus Christ. But back to the descriptions here about the church. It's described in many ways, as I said from the beginning. We just heard it called there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the church of God. And that's descriptive of the church. It is indeed the church of God. It is also the temple of God. It is also the kingdom of heaven. It is also the kingdom of God. It is also the household of God. It's also referred to as the pillar and ground of the truth. It is also called the fold of the sheep or the sheepfold. All of these things describe the church. There's one that I'd like for us to talk about this morning, and that is this idea of the bride of Christ. How the church is referred to and spoken of in terms of being the bride of Christ. So let's begin our journey here as we talk about this in Hosea. So I hope you've turned there to the book of Hosea. 
And we will begin talking about this. And we'll begin talking about it in the terms of the church has been betrothed to Jesus. Now that word is a word we don't use every day, betrothed. But I think we all understand what that means. It means to be be promised to in marriage. The prophet Hosea was commissioned by God in an unusual way. If you remember from your Bible studies, that he was told to take a wife of harlotry. And we find out why God wanted him to do that as we read here in Hosea chapter 1, read verse 2 along with me. When the Lord Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. And here's the reason why. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. God was demonstrating through the prophet Hosea how his people were being unfaithful to him. And he's using the unfaithfulness in a a marriage to make his point. And he's going to punish them for their unfaithfulness. And their unfaithfulness, of course, includes idolatry. And all the things that they participated in and were engaged in and falling away from the Lord. But he's going to use this idea of unfaithfulness in the marriage relationship to make his point. And he's going to punish them for their unfaithfulness. But as we see so often with our God, he wants his rebellious children to be restored to him. He goes to great pains and great heartache on his, on his part to restore his children to him. We see it over and over and over again. And we see in the beginning uh, of chapter 2, in verse 14, how he plans to accomplish this. And we see him using again this relationship of marriage to explain how he wants his children to be restored to him. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 of Hosea, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give to her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth and in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt and will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bailey. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will, uh, will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant with them, with the, blood, with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. Here's how the Lord's going to restore his children to him. This idea of the marriage, this idea of bringing the bride and adorning her and giving her all the things that she needs. Note in verse 16, it says there, and and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and no longer call me Bailey. The word Ishi there means my husband. And the word Bailey means my master. And it has the overtones of Baal. You see it right there in the name. The Baal were the gods of the Canaanites. And these are those gods that the children of Israel came to worship as they come into the land. 
God is telling them that there is coming a time when they're no longer going to worship those gods. He says there in verse 17, For I will remove their names of, of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will not be mentioned anymore. So instead of calling him Baali, which means my Lord or my Baal, he says, you're going to call me my husband. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? Keep that in the back of your mind as we go forward. As often is the case with Old Testament prophecy, we see an immediate application. And within the immediate application, we see overtones of the Messianic prophecy. The prophecy is about the coming Messiah, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. So let's pick up in our reading in verse 19. Let's read verses 19 and 20 here from Hosea 2. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you know that I am the Lord. In verse 19, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. We see here allusions to a time when God will set up that lasting relationship, one that will endure forever. We know that the relationship will be fulfilled in Christ. When we talk about an everlasting kingdom, we're talking about the church. We're talking about a time that will come forward through time. And on that day, it will take place. The relationship will be fulfilled in Christ. Notice in verse 20, he says, And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. We all know about faithfulness. And we know about faithfulness in the marriage relationship. It is the basic foundation within the marriage relationship. In the wedding vows, it's often said, forsaking all others. It means that they're going to be true to each other and no one else. No one else is going to be allowed in that relationship. Likewise, God wants us to be faithful to him. Forsaking all other gods, as these in Israel had to learn a hard lesson. Forsaking creeds, forsaking man-made religions, forsaking any other denominations that don't wear the name from Scripture. God expects us to be faithful to him and no one else. Look in verse 21. Here are some more details about the kingdom that he's going to set up. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and, the, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will also have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, thou art my God. A kingdom that's going to be available to all that are faithful to him. Not just Israel. Clearly this is allusions to time when God is going to set up his church. 
and the Jews are going to be asked to come in, and the Gentiles are going to be asked to come in. This is the betrothing, or the promising of marriage, that God has ordained for his people. Go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a betrothing. This is a promising in marriage. Back here in Hosea, the prophet's speaking of a time that will come. When there's going to be a betrothing between the groom and the bride. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, we read, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Here again, we see the marriage relationship equated with the relationship that we are to have with our Lord. Paul makes it even clearer who the bride and the groom are. And in this passage, purity and faithfulness are also stressed. Paul says that the bride of Christ is to be a pure virgin. And he goes on to talk about, the rema- about them remaining faithful to Jesus. Look in verses 3 and 4 here of 2 Corinthians 11. But I am afraid, lest the serpent be deceived by Eve, by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. The idea of faithfulness comes through here again, doesn't it? The betrothed bride is, of course, the church, which will be further established here in just a moment as we go on. But faithfulness and purity are stressed again in this relationship. In the marriage relationship, which, which talks of and speaks of the relationship that we have with our God, purity and faithfulness. So now that the church has been betrothed to Jesus, there's responsibilities of the bride and the groom. And again, faithfulness comes striking through. In both passages we looked at over there, over there in Hosea, and as we looked here in, in 2 Corinthians 11, regarding the betrothal, we see how important it is for each of them to remain faithful to each other. Go with me now to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. A passage we often go to to talk about marriage. Romans chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband, While he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, while her husband is living, if she is joined to another uh, another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also who were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Two things I want you to notice from this passage. 
and both of them involve fidelity. Fidelity to the wife and to the law. Paul is saying here that a married couple is bound together. And they're bound together until one of them dies. In this case, he's speaking of the husband. Only upon the death of the husband is the wife free to marry another man. Now, we also know from our Lord's teaching in Matthew 19 that a couple can be divorced on the count of adultery. But apart from that, God expects the couple, couple to be faithful to one another until death. Notice again verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Paul is telling the Jews that they have been freed by the old law, freed from the old law, by the death of Jesus Christ. So they're freed from that marriage relationship. They're no longer bound by the old law. And now they are free to be joined to another, just as the wife is free to be joined to another if her husband dies. And they are free to be joined to Jesus Christ in this relationship of marriage. In other words, they have been betrothed to Christ. They have been promised in marriage to Jesus Christ. In, this, in these few verses, it stresses that there is only one church, just as there is only one wife. As the married couple is not free to have relationships outside the marriage, those in the church are not free to have relationships outside of their relationship with God. They're not free to worship as they please. They're not free to worship idols. They're not free to follow after man's creeds. They're not free to follow after man-made religion. The relationship that God sees is one. Relationship with the bride, that is the church, and the groom, and that is Jesus Christ. And just as faithfulness is expected and vowed in marriage, Faithfulness is expected and vowed in the Christian's relationship with God. One other thing I want us to look at about the responsibilities of the, of the groom and the, and the bride and the marriage relationship is the importance of love and nurturing one another. Look over in Ephesians 5. We can't talk about marriage and the relationship of our Lord without looking at Ephesians 5. Let's look there, beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Remember about purity and faithfulness? It comes through here too, doesn't it? 
So husbands ought to love their own wives as, they, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one has ever ate, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. The wife and the husband are expected to love each other. Simple, right? The husband is told to love his wife. And the wife is told to respect her husband. In this same way, we see the love of Christ for the church. And we are expected to respect him being the bride. So we've talked about a betrothal, a promising in marriage. We've talked about the responsibilities that the groom and the bride have within that marriage. Let's end our discussion this morning talking about the marriage feast. The marriage feast is a time of celebration. It's a time of celebrating the marriage between the groom and the bride, between the husband and the wife. We have been betrothed to Christ Jesus. And there's a time coming that there will be a celebration. That there's going to be a wedding feast. And these are joyous times. In attendance at that feast will be the glorified groom and the glorified bride. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. Let's talk about each one of these. The glorified groom and the glorified bride. The glorified groom. The glorified Jesus Christ. John sees him here. And we get an, a glimpse of what the glorified Christ looks like. In Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12, it says, And I turned and to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breath with a golden girdle. And on his head, and his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine seeing the glorified Christ the way that John has described him here? Remember, John was with him in his ministry and saw him walking on the earth. And now to see the glorified Christ in this way. What an amazing sight. There's also the glorified bride. Look over in chapter 21 of Revelation. The glorified bride. Revelation 21, verse 2. 
says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Go over to verse 9 of Revelation 21. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a, a stone of crystal clear jasper. We won't read the rest of that, but it goes on to describe this beautiful city and the high walls and the gold and the precious jewels. Talking about the city of God. Talking about the kingdom of God. What do we say those things were? It's the church. This is the glorified bride. We have the glorified Christ, the glorified groom. We have the glorified bride. That is the kingdom of God. And finally, we have that wedding feast. Look back in chapter 19 of Revelation. Brad read this for us a minute ago. Let's read about the wedding feast in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These things are the true words of God. We're told about this wedding feast and who's in attendance. The glorified Christ, the, glor the Lamb, and the glorified bride. This is the time when all the saints, the bride, are joined together in heaven with Jesus Christ, the groom. Verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Words would fail me if I tried to describe any more than what John has described here about the wedding feast. A time when this beautifully adorned bride will be given in marriage to the glorified groom, the glorified Christ. So it begs the question then, are you invited to the wedding feast? You're only invited if you've made yourself ready. Remember how John describes how the, the, the bride has been made ready. He says, The bride is made ready by dressing in fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. And those righteous acts can only be carried out in obedience to Jesus Christ. And that first act of obedience is, is surrendering in baptism. The way that we become into the, come into the kingdom of God is through baptism. There's no other way to come into this kingdom. Hearing the word of the Lord, believing that it's true, and act upon it by repenting, knowing that you need to make a change in your life. Upon that, we make a confession. We confess that the Lord, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Son of God. And upon that confession, we are then subject for baptism. 
First Peter 3 and verse 21 says, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's how we come into this kingdom. That's how we get invited to the wedding feast, if we remain faithful until the end, as Jesus speaks of in Revelation 2 and verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's the crown that we will wear at this wedding feast. The invitation is to you. If you're not a child of God and would like to be, you can be baptized this very hour. If as a child of God you've stumbled, if you're unsure of your place in the kingdom, you need to make things right with your God. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.